BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This week on Weather Geeks, we are honored to have International Space Station Commander Terry Virts. Terry first flew into space aboard the Space Shuttle Endeavour in 2010. Four years later, he returned and spent 200 days aboard the International Space Station, taking more photos from space than any other astronaut. Many of these photos appear in his book, View from Above. Today, we'll talk all about that view, space travel, and the fragility of our planet, and much more. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Terry, thank you for joining us. Great to be here. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I always talk about as an earth scientist myself that we have no plan B planet. (laughs) And you certainly have the most unique view of all in terms of seeing the planet from space. So talk to us a little bit about how becoming an astronaut was a part of your goal set as a human being. How did you get to that point, first of all? Well, you know, when I was a kid um, growing up near the Goddard Space Flight Center where you used to work, I first the first book I ever read was about Apollo. Right. It was one of those reader books, one sentence per page, cardboard pages, and I was hooked. And growing up, my room was full of pictures of space and airplanes, and it was just something. I never thought I could do it, but I loved it, so I kind of learned about it. The right stuff came out, and that was a real inspiration. I read the book as a teenager, and um, it was something that I wanted to do, and I kind of figured out what I needed to do and went step by step and got lucky and got picked. Yeah, and you it was really interesting because, you, I, as I mentioned to Terry before we came on, I, I was a scientist at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center for 12 years before joining the University of Georgia. And so uh, it's interesting. You were saying that your father and your mother both yeah. worked there in, at Goddard? My mom was a secretary and my dad was a technician and my stepdad was an engineer who built magnetometers and mass spectrometers. Yeah. And um, his instruments went to all the planets from Mercury all the way out to Pluto over his 40-year career. So... Um, I didn't grow up like knowing I would be an astronaut uh, or anything like that, but I kind of had that in the background and space was just something I always loved. Yeah, so it's, um, you know, and, and, you know, we're going to get into your career and your time on the space station, <laughs> your perspective on Earth. But I, mm-hmm. I want to delve deeper because our Weather Geeks listeners uh, are very curious. And yeah, some of these questions I'm sure you get often, but I, I, I like to have a conversation. I mean, just Tell us how long it took you to become an astronaut. What was, in, in the Reader's right. Digest version, sure. what was the process? So, honestly, it takes a lifetime. Yeah. I mean, you, your whole life you need to be learning new new things. Um, but I became a pilot. I went to the Air Force Academy and became an F-16 pilot. And then eventually test pilot, which is one of the routes. You can also be a scientist or a medical doctor or an engineer. But I, I went through the fighter pilot track. And then while I was still a test pilot school student, I ended up getting um, interviewed by NASA and ended up getting picked uh, as pretty young uh, person. So that was my path. Okay. And it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people, and I, I get this question a lot as a former NASA scientist, they'll be like, um, 
are you at Kennedy Space Center? I said, no, you know, NASA has several space centers around right. the nation. I and mean, sometimes I'll even say, do you know any astronauts? And I actually do because I'm good friends with people like Kathy Sullivan and yeah. Mary Cleave and others mm-hmm. who I've known. Um, but you've had this really unique experience in that you have launched from Cape Canaveral mm-hmm. and from, I guess, the former Soviet Union, right. Russia. Kazakhstan, yeah. Yeah, Kazakhstan. Are there any differences in that experiences <laughs> launching from, say, a space shuttle from Cape Canaveral versus sort of the launch vehicles? I mean, just tell us about the differences in right. those two experiences. So some things are the same. Like you go through this very timelined day of launch. You have your doctors and you get suited up and you get in the van. You drive out to the launch pad and you look up at this huge rocket. There are right. some things that are very similar. Is their rocket, and I, I've seen it before, is it larger than the shuttle? No, no, no. It no. is The small. shuttle was huge. It's huge. It was a four million pound okay. beat. It was like a, this gigantic hypersonic dragon coming to life. It was something from Game of Thrones. So the way I describe it, this, the shuttle was like a muscle car. Okay. And the Soyuz is like a sports car. Ah. Uh, ro- the Roadster. It's a this. It, it was much smaller, but when the engines light up, it's a loud noise in both rockets. Right. And then, bam, you get smashed into your seat, and you're off to the races. Right. It's about eight and a half minute ride to space in eight both and cases. Minutes. Okay. And how roughly how many G's are you experiencing? The, at the-, the shuttle topped out at three. Um, the Soyuz went a little bit higher, uh, but it's about the same. Okay. Um, it, it's a lot. It's like being in the fastest supercar you've been in on Earth. Only when you step on the gas in your Mustang GT or your Ferrari, you get pushed back, and two or three seconds later, you're at top speed. Right. In the shuttle or Soyuz, you get smashed back, and then eight and a half minutes later, you're at top speed. So oh, wow. you, you end up going a lot faster. Right. I see. I see. And in terms of when you get to space, I mean, everyone's familiar with the weightlessness or right. being weightless. Right. And I mean, I'm sure people have seen the videos of yeah. astronauts. You know, twirling bananas around those right. types of things. Can you actually describe the feeling, or is it just something that you have to kind of so, experience? It feels like um, the way I describe it is it it feels like you're falling uh, because you're falling, um, but you're just falling around the Earth, right? It's but you're also going seventeen thousand exactly. five hundred miles an hour. So as you fall towards the center of the Earth, you go forward really fast, and I that see. and that makes a curve. And if you're at orbital speed, you end up in a curve that's the same shape as the Earth, and so you stay about the same altitude. I see. Uh, which is a few, a few hundred miles up, um, and it feels like you're falling. And you can experience that if you if you're a pilot, you can get in your airplane and push over on the stick, and you'll get a couple seconds of weightlessness. Um, I the vomit. I, what is this vomit, the vomit comet? comet? Yeah, yeah. there's an airplane that simulates so some Na- of this. Right? NASA used to have one. That there's a private company called Zero G that you can go buy a ticket and you can fly and feel weightlessness. Oh, wait, public, the public can do absolutely. This. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize it's like that. a uh, space tourism or experience kind of thing. I think it, I, I don't know what the price is. A few thousand dollars, I guess. But um, you can go. They call them parabolas, but basically the. It's a 727. The pilot pulls up really, real, like way steeper than you've ever flown before. And then he pushes forward and the airplane floats for about 20 seconds. And then it's it's way steeper in a dive than you've ever been before. And then he pulls out. and Oh, my God. Um, I, I may have to pass. On there's that. a reason why it's called the vomit. <laughs> the vomit, vomit. So <laughs> if you do it, take the medicine. Yeah. Better living through chemistry is my right. advice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, you were in space. I mean, you were at the International Space Station. I, I was. Before I go there, though, just tell us how many times you've been in space. Uh, twice. twice. So I flew once on Shuttle Endeavor. Mm-hmm. 
and then uh, once with the Russians on the Soyuz. Right, and so on the Soyuz. So in your time on the International Space Station, first of all, you know, as an Earth scientist and one that worked at NASA developing weather and climate satellites looking back at Earth, I'm, you know, when I told people that, it kind of intuitively get why we're doing those types of things. Talk to us a little bit before we talk about your own experience, why we have an International Space Station and why it's important. So the mission of the space station is science. Yeah. And when I was there, we did 250 different experiments. Um, anything you can major in at the University of Georgia is probably being tested in space. Biology, chemistry, physics, also a lot of human medicine, um, uh, material science. Uh, we studied weather. We studied, you know, there's some experiments that do that. Astronomy, um, lots of different stuff. Some of them are just boxes that are powered on in the background, and I didn't even know they were running. Yeah, they well, we've got a CubeSat we're working on at the University of Georgia that's going up soon. I launched some CubeSats, yeah. these little saddle, little, they're bigger than a, like a lunchbox, yeah. but they're, yeah, they're not, you know, satellite size. Exactly. Um, and we can put them in a little airlock, the robotic arm grabs them and shoots them out into space. Yeah. Uh, which are really cool. That's a really growing oh, it's a technology huge right now. Yeah, we're yeah. we're we've got projects with the Air Force and NASA right now. Yeah, CubeSats. Yeah. Um. So, uh, that's the mission of the space station. But I think, um, a bigger impact of the space station beyond the science is the international aspect, the cooperation. Because when I was flying, in fact, one of the chapters in my book, um, I tell a story. But you know, we were I was with Russians and an Italian. Um, and so if you haven't watched the news or watched Twitter recently, there, it's been bad between the West and Russia. The yeah. last five years have been really bad. Um, and yet I was training there. I was flying in space with them. Uh, these folks became my best friends. I still email them and every week we're still talking to each other. So while governments end up having this conflict on the planet, we were working together, which I think is an example of how people can and should work together. Yeah. So I think... The science is great, but the international aspect is even more important in the long run, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And having also worked internationally with the Japanese colleagues and others, that is a, as important as the science. It, right. it has its own humanitarian it, mission. In at the end of the day, people are people, and that's... Yeah, shout out to Depeche Mode. That's one of my favorite songs, <laughs> by the way. People are people. Uh, that's so true. 200 days in space. That's a lot. What's that like? I mean, So... It was a long 200 days, although I loved it. And we ended up getting extended. The Russian, we had a SpaceX and an orbital and a Russian, three different cargo ships blew up. Um, when the Russian Progress blew up, it launches on the same rocket that we launch on, the so a Soyuz rocket. So they delayed our uh, replacement crew f unknown amount of time while they did a safety investigation to make sure the next crew wasn't going to you know, be on the a problem rocket. And so we I were, we were stuck in space. Yeah, we, I remember we, this. we didn't know when we were coming back and other astronauts have been told, Hey, you may be delayed. And a lot of times that's, you're not real happy about that. Like if you're in the army in Iraq, as long as you know when your date is, you can survive. But if that date gets moved, that's when guys morale gets low. Exactly. But you know, our, that's when I was commander, our crew handled it really well. My view, my attitude was I'm in space. I'm going to enjoy it. I'll have the rest of my life back on Earth. Whenever I get back, I get back. I, I could have stayed for a year. Um, we ended up extending for a month. So right. it was. it's just such an amazing, I mean, I hate to use the term, but it's really an alien experience. It's right. not earthly. It's right. you're floating right. and the views are 
uh, you, I mean, I can show you pictures. I can show you the IMAX movie we made. But unless you see them, you just can't imagine them. Yeah. We're talking with Terry Virts, who is the author of View from Above. Uh, it's photos he took while he was in space. I mean, he's been in space twice in 200 days. You just heard about his delay. Uh, <laughs> is it hard to take? I mean, you're, you're, you're a satellite. You are. Yeah, I mean, there are true. only a few people that can say <laughs> that I'm also a satellite. Yeah, you are a satellite. And when we launch weather satellites, for example, we're using visible or infrared or microwave uh, based parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. Right. But we're, you're using the visible part to right. remotely sense the Earth. Um, is it hard to take pictures from that vantage point? So that we have to do a whole nother podcast. <laughs> I mean, I could talk about photography for hours. Yeah. Um, I ended up there's some poor guy at the Johnson Space Center us to count. And they told me I took the most pictures ever well, how over, many i mean over they told me it was over three hundred nineteen thousand. still wow stills plus you know terabytes of video, video yeah. um and are, are those sorry when you, as you take those are you storing them on so are they being sort of sent back to right as you take them yeah so it's all digital now when okay. i started as an astronaut we still had wet film and hasselblad cameras and obviously you know about five or ten years ago we switched to digital um so i have this workflow where i would take whatever I was taking, put it on the little memory card, put those in my pocket, put a new clean card in. And then throughout the day, my pocket would get full of cards. And at the end of the day, I would sit there and put them in the laptop. Hit There's a program, hit download, put the next one in the laptop, hit download. And then uh, the guys on the ground would store them. Right. Welcome back to Weather Geeks. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we are joined by pilot, astronaut, author, and photographer Terry Vert. Uh, he's an amazing individual. Frankly, I've I've had the pleasure of meeting several astronauts over my career at NASA and and afterwards. And let me just tell you a little about Terry. He was selected as an astronaut at NASA in 2010. He made his first space flight as pilot of the Space Shuttle Endeavor during STS-130. Uh, this was a mission to deliver the now famous Kapula, uh, which provides astronauts with a 360-degree view of the International Space Station. After two weeks in space, he returned to Earth, and as a part of NASA's leadership training, he's actually attended Harvard Business School and completed general management program there. And then 2014, off to Russia, to the Bakunar, uh, Kazakhstan, and was launched to the space station aboard a Soyuz vehicle. So I just wanted to give you a little bit of background. He spent 200 days in space on Expedition 42 and 43. So that's just a little background on the sort of average guy we're talking to today on podcasts, <laughs> and I say that quite jokingly. It's an honor to have you on the podcast. It's great to be here. Now, let's get more into views of weather from space yeah. because you know i'm a meteorologist this is weather geeks so uh we use satellites you use your eyes what's the view of weather like from that vantage point um that's funny i was i've got my dropbox i was just looking through i've got a weather folder of pictures of nice. different weather. i'd love to see it yeah <laughs> do you ever well, tweet any of these what's your twitter by the way it's astro terry at, at astro terry so yeah. make sure you're following terry out there and weather geeks too sometimes i tweet you know, pictures I took from space. And when I was in space, I did a lot of Instagram and, and Twitter and, and now Facebook. But um, there's so many different kinds of weather. Uh, first of all, there's day and night. So there, it's very different seeing things during the day and at nighttime. Um, but, you know, thunderstorms are incredible. Over America, if you're in West Texas, you think, wow, this is a big thunderstorm. Well, if you go over Africa, especially, or South America, or the southern part of uh, like Indonesia, that area, 
Holy cow! Yeah, there's a lot of thunderstorms there. So and, it, and you see the light. Yeah, that's at the, nighttime. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Yeah. The, the it's. I I used to go down to the cupola and I would let go. I would put on my little Bose speaker. I'd put Enya's uh, "Storms in Africa," and I would let go and just sit there and look up and. It's tens of flashes per second. The amount of energy was just incredible. Yeah, and you know that's the meteorology one hundred and one. There, he, he's some of the areas he's talking about are some of the most electrically active places on the planet. If you go out there and Google these global maps that NASA's satellites or NOAA's satellites are providing, and you know the GOES satellite has right. a lightning mapper on it now, you can see some of these big lightning flashes. Not certainly from the vantage point that he had, but these storms over the central africa that's probably the most lightning intense region on the planet as far as the u.s it's usually um central florida or so so yeah. i can imagine i'm glad to hear you say that because that's what i saw <laughs> yeah no absolutely no if you go and look at some of the data from say the trim lightning instrument uh, aboard the nasa trim satellite and others uh there's always a maxima over central africa yeah yeah and so it sounds like that if i had a night that. if there was ever a night pass over africa um and it was like it, my time evening, so I had some free time. I would go down the, and just sit there and float and watch it. It's it's That's spectacular. Amazing. What about? I mean, you you, you talked about. Um, so we're talking about whether anything other than lightning oh, that yeah. caught your oh, eye, God. hurricanes, typhoons. So as far as those go, I saw during my two hundred day mission, I saw twenty three different storms, uh, tropical storms, cyclones, typhoons, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and there was one in particular, MySAC. It was the biggest one I've ever seen. It was, a, I think it was at the time, the largest ever Pacific um, storm. It was humongous. In, our, in the IMAX movie, Beautiful Planet, it's, there's a great video flying over this thing. The, the eye was super well-defined. I, when I saw it, I gasped. And I got my crewmates. Everybody floated down, and they all gasped. I mean, it's and I, I do a lot of speaking, right. and it's the first picture, the, my Earth slideshow, it's the first one. And... 100% of the time, the whole audience gasps. I mean, this was an amazing storm. Wow. But those were beautiful, but also, like, they're dangerous. And when you see something like that, you know it's it's probably going to kill people. So that it's, it, it was. It's like this... It's beautiful, but man, it's terrifying. Also, you know. Yeah, so. we we struggle with that as meteorologists, yeah. even out on Twitter, because you know, for right now, even as we're taping this, we have a super typhoon Maria out in Pacific, and it's headed right towards uh, parts of you know, Asia, and it looks like it could be pretty bad. And we're excited I, about it as meteorologists. We get all but right. You, you have to remember not to cheer for the storms because yeah. they're dangerous. They kill people. I'm so, flying to China tomorrow morning. Oh, you are. I'll we'll have to yeah. get the briefing from yeah, you afterwards. Absolutely. Yeah, super uh, super typhoon. Maria is um, you know, heading heading toward the Chinese coast as we speak. Well, they're uh, yeah. they're uh, um, you know those those are amazing. But there's also other uh, weather in the North Pacific. You would see these huge, probably thousand mile low pressure systems. So this hurricane spiral, but it wasn't filled in. Yeah, these are probably the big extra tropical uh, storms up in the North in Pacific. the North Pacific. Yeah, they're, and they're very like if I sh if you showed me one, I could tell you if it was North Pacific or not because it didn't look like that anywhere else on Earth. Mm -hmm. Just the bands, you could still see ocean between them. It wasn't like completely filled yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. These are very unique cyclones, more extra tropical in nature, as the Weather Geeks listeners know, because it's getting its energy more from differences in air masses, whereas the tropical storms are getting their energy from evaporated water and those. North 
North Pacific storms have a very unique signature in the satellite yeah. data. So it sounds like you were able to. I, I recognize that. them, but I didn't know any of that stuff. Yeah. But I knew that it looked cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it yeah, no, those, really... they're they're very well known systems. Yeah. You know, yeah, I I like this show called the Deadliest Catch. I, I was about to say <laughs> the, every time I would think about Deadliest Catch. Yeah. I'm glad I'm not down there. Absolutely, because um, those those are the storms that are wreaking havoc on those folks. So another place that really stood out to me was the Southern Ocean. And every time I'd fly by there, I, and again, the low pressure systems there, I think they may go in a different direction. They, yeah, the, the rotational sense of storms in the Southern Hemisphere is exactly the, opposite. the opposite. So lows in the Southern right. Hemisphere are rotating clockwise, whether they're, and they're clock, counterclockwise in the Northern Hemisphere. Okay, I'm glad to hear that because yeah. that's what I saw. Yeah. And um, they were unique that nowhere else had the weather it just looked weird it almost looked alien it was really really, how so i mean i'm curious i guess they were really thin and looking at them it just didn't look like a hurricane it it looked like um this thin like ominous weather and i've read stories of sailors down there what a terrible you know the weather is always really bad and it looked like the weather was always really bad flying over the southern Ocean in Tierra del Fuego is a pl- actually I was just there uh, a few weeks ago filming a pilot for what we hope to be a new TV show, mm-hmm. um, and that was our first episode. And I can understand the Tierra del Fuego place was pretty mild, and they have these channels through the land that the so the sailors wouldn't have to go down in those terrible storms. They could kind of sneak, sneak through the through the other. Yeah. And I, after having been there, I understood why they did that. It was. Now let's let's speaking of that with all of this wealth of experience and just observations. Let's talk about your book. Okay. Yeah, let's talk about view from above. Why why'd you write it? Why would you feel compelled to write it? So um, or, or put put it out there. Right. At, so I've been at NASA for 16 years. I got to a point where you know, I'd spent 7 months in space. I had been the shuttle pilot and station commander. I'd done spacewalks. So I was ready to deliberately move on to my next phase of life. I didn't want to kind of hang on and hopefully get one more flight and I wanted to be like all right I've done everything let's Mm -hmm. move on and the first thing I wanted to do was write a book and it just so happened with National Geographic they had decided that they wanted it had been 20 years since they'd done a space book and the planets aligned and so the timing was perfect and I did not want to write a memoir there's been a hundred astronaut memoirs so I didn't want to write that Um, that story has been told I wanted to write what it's like in space right and so the book is a combination of photos of what it looks like in space and also and the other aspect was the text and I actually wrote the book myself I didn't have a ghostwriter ghost writer, or yeah. co-author or anything like that so um I wasn't sure if I could do it but man the words just flowed and so hopefully if you get the book you'll get a sense of what it's like um in space and that's what that's the right. that's the story that I'm trying to and tell and is that what it's like in space perspective not simply looking back at earth but also what it's like looking out uh, so yes so i there's a chapter on launch and on spacewalks there's a chapter on emergency we had this one big uh, ammonia leak emergency Ooh. but there's also a few chapters that i wrote based on color and one of the things i didn't expect um but i experienced was i got to know earth by color hmm. um and it was interesting i'd always known earth by like the food or the people or you know, the Eiffel Tower or chicken and whatever in the South, or, you know, you know places by the food you eat, the people you meet. When I got to space, I got to know the planet by colors. And so I wrote some chapters about that. I wrote a chapter about the universe and 
most of my time was looking down, but sometimes I'd look out and right. see billions of stars, stars or these amazing uh, and or probably the light with a, probably with a clarity that we just can't even appreciate on Earth because of the light pollution here. You go out to Sierra Nevadas or Glacier, yeah, or, was, know, yeah. Turn the lights off, and it's amazing. And you do that times ten in space. I mean, there's an zero atmosphere. Yeah. There's zero light. As long as the lights are off in the spaceship, there's zero light pollution, and it's amazing. Yeah, go outside on a spacewalk, and there's really there's just this little thin piece of plastic visor. You know, between you and the universe. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, you did do some spacewalks. You said I did three different spacewalks. Yeah. How, how's that? Oh God, that's a whole nother yeah. thing. I mean, I mean, you're you're literally stepping out into space with. You talked about being a satellite. Yeah. You really are your own spaceship. This the spacesuit protects you, obviously, and you've got your own cooling and oxygen and communication. There's a little jetpack you can even fly around. So. Um, you really are your own little mini spaceship. And 99% of my spacewalks were spent holding on to metal handrails and equipment and plugging cables in and putting grease on bolts and working. And every once in a while, I would stop and just turn around, and it was like having a view of creation. It was like, okay, this is what God sees. And right. humans are not supposed to be seeing this. I can't believe what I'm seeing. And then right. back to work because i got to plug yeah, in this right. cable. And So you did sneak some views. I plan. snuck you it. You can't help it. Right. And then it was bad. I felt, I've never felt more on the clock, you know, worse than any NBA draft or MLB draft or anything. I, You were on the clock when you are doing a spacewalk. But if you could sneak a few seconds, it's the, the pictures are great. It really is. You can't imagine it unless you see it yourself. Welcome back to Weather Geeks, and we're talking space today, and I, I want to kind of pivot a little bit in the same area we're talking about, uh, but I mean, you saw a planet from a perspective that only a few people will ever see it, and you know, the planet's changing. Mm-hmm. Did you see evidence of this change from your perspective, so, or the human imprint on, this, on the planet? That's a chapter in my book. Um, the big issue today is climate change, sure. obviously, when it comes to science and weather. Um, and you can't see climate change. By definition, it's change. It's change, and it's happening over long periods of time. So you need an Excel spreadsheet with decades and decades of data. Right. I mean, you could go, well, hey, there was no no major hurricane hit America for 11 years, so right. th- things must be getting less. Or And then one year you have four. So you can't be anecdotal like that. As a scientist, you know, you have to be um, – there was a period – a friend of mine, Pierce Sellers. Oh, I you, know Pierce yeah, very well. He was sure. a Goddard – so he was a climate guy, and I don't know I'm a fighter pilot. And I'm yeah. like, look, Piers, there's all this noise, and people are saying all this stuff, and I, I don't want ideology. I just want to know the data. And he said, so I was looked at the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change as kind of like the focal point of climate change. And uh, you look at the temperature, it was getting warmer, and then it flattened out about a decade ago. And I was like, Piers, what is, is this happening? Oh, the like, pause in 1998 that some people talk about. The pause. Yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah, but that's only a decade. you got to look at – and I was – that really changed my perspective. Okay, you can't pick and – you can't cherry pick can't cherry. It was just like your stock. I, can, I wish I could look at the stock market today and, and, right. and define what my retirement looks like, but I can't right. do that. Past right? performance is no guarantee yeah, of future performance. Exactly. But um, so climate change, you can't – see in one thing sure but the in, there was two big environmental things that i could see uh one of them is pollution and especially over china i mean north china is a brown 
the brown cloud, so, the haze between was, yeah Beijing and, and I, you can clearly see that from I have, because I know our satellites that are measuring various pollutants can see it, but you can no see it. doubt. Wow. I, as part of the IMAX Beautiful Planet, they wanted us to get shots of the Seven Gorges Dam, this big hydroelectric project they're doing in Beijing, and we never could because it was just brown. I mean, it was you wow. Couldn't, you couldn't see stuff there. India was pretty hazy too, but it's jungle, so. I think it was partial humidity and partial pollution. Yeah, and I've, I've, I've read studies in the scientific literature that say that, particularly with India, a lot of times that, that, that brown, whatever you're calling it, right. actually gets shoved up against the Himalayas up there in the northern part of India, too. It, I saw that, yeah. so I guess that's what yeah, I was saying. Yeah, the monsoonal yeah. flow and some other things will actually, sh you can kind of really see it kind of aggregated there in that area. But China is by far the biggest. And, you know, like America, obviously we have a big economy, and, and you can— I never saw any pollution. I mean, it, America is just beautiful, and obviously, yeah. Thank, thank, this, thank goodness for in this case the you know the EPA and you know yeah. President Nixon created the EPA right. and some of the Clean Air Acts. I mean, we don't have to think we, about some we of those things. have a pretty nice country. Yeah, we need to remember on, that too, yeah. listeners. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the other environmental impact that you could see, like man-made environmental impact, uh, was deforestation, mm -hmm. and by far the worst is Madagascar. It's really, Oh, it's, Oh, and that's bit, some of the most unique ecosystem in the world. So in the fifties and sixties, they deforested the Island and on the Eastern part, there's this little green band. Look, go on Google maps. You can see it. Um, but 90% of the Island is Brown. And especially on the West coast, you see Betsa Boca river. There's just these red, it's the topsoil. Just, it looks like the Island's bleeding cause it's this red running out to the ocean. Wow. Um, and you still see the little green that's where, you know, the lemurs and yeah, it's a rainforest. It's amazing. But, um, the Amazon also is most of the time it's white cause there's thunderstorms. But if you get a day without thunderstorms, um, you see this deep green rainforest, except in certain parts, there's a few parts where there's giant feet. You can see where there's squares and lines and that's where people have, you know, cut it down. So you could see, uh, look, I'm a fan of food. I'm I'm not opposed to sure, food. Sure. Um, it's a habit I can't kick. So there's lot, but there's lots of places you can farm. I mean, Georgia has America could feed the world. Yeah, uh, Argentina is a thousand miles of farm fields, but like the Amazon rainforest is probably not the best place to cut you know there's other places where we should be cutting trees down and farming and not not the amazon so. and you know what's really with all of you just said which is so important the other impact of this deforestation is it actually can change weather patterns too i mean we right. we saw a deforestation in brazil for example how it impacted perhaps drought and the water supply issues in places like brazil so right. uh, as we have known for many years because of a lot of nasa science the earth is a connected system right so and you can use natural resources, and we should use them, but you should use them sustain sustainably. sustainably. Sure, right, right, right. absolutely. I think that right. you know I, there, there are many op examples of that. I want to kind of get back to something you started to allude to when we first began the podcast, talking about humanity and connectivity. Um, you know three languages. You've been all over the world. You're active on social media. Uh, you've met people from many different cultures. What would you say about humanity and the state of humanity today and how your perspective mm -hmm. as a, a space traveler has changed your right. view of that? Um, there was a gentleman named Charles Krauthammer. He was a commentator. Oh, and he, I, yeah. he recently died. He recently passed on. Yeah. So I read a book. He had a book of essays, and one of them said that um, he was a medical doctor. Sure. But he said that political science is the most important science. And I've really come to believe that 
because if we get that right, we improve people's lives and we do all these amazing things. And if we get it wrong, we go to war and we just mess everything up. So I think it's important that we kind of work together as societies. And it, when we get that side wrong, you end up with a real mess. And from space, it was on my fifth night in space. Um, and I was looking out at the earth and uh, you, it hit me that during the daytime, if you were an alien flying by the planet, in the daytime, you go, wow, that's a beautiful planet, and you keep on going. But at nighttime, you can see people and through city lights. Through the, the During lights. the daytime, you can't tell there's people down here. Right. But at nighttime, you can see it through right. city lights. And the, the thing that hit me, and I had never heard before, was the fact that um, you're not seeing population. You're seeing wealth. So Interesting. in Western Europe, there's a thousand lights on. And there's a lot of people in the East Coast of America. There's a lot of lights. There's 100 million people. Flying over Africa, the Nile, you can see, is brightly lit up. People go to the river at nighttime. Yes. Uh, or, a dirt, you know, they live on the river and you can see it at night. Right. You can see Lagos, Nigeria. It's an oil-rich country. Um, Johannesburg lights up really well in the south. Um, in between those three, there's a billion people. Right. And there is not a light you on. You can't see anything. So you can really see the. some people are living in wealth and some people are not. And the most striking example of that is on the Korean Peninsula. There's a, I've tweeted this picture. It's, it's been pretty famous, and other astronauts have too. Um, South Korea is amazing. I, I, I flew F-16s there. Seoul is one of the brightest cities. I was, I've been there a couple of times this year. It is a thriving economy. China, there's a million cities. China's obviously growing. You know, the city lights are there. And in between China and South Korea is a giant black hole. Yes. Same number of people on both sides of the line. Uh, there's a little white dot where Pyongyang is. Seoul is this huge, sprawling Just, city. Right. Pyongyang is a white dot. And right. that's the one example of you can see how people live. Some people live in light. Some people live in the darkness. Yeah. North Korea is the biggest example uh, of that. Yeah, and I think you can. I think that has multiple meanings in terms of what you when you. Some say people that. live in light, and some people yeah. live in dark. Yeah. What about uh, you know? I'm a big sort of user of social media, mm -hmm. and one of the challenges with social media, I think it's a net good, mm -hmm. but in the weather community and in the climate change world, boy, there are all kinds of opinions and theories out right. there. And it all looks like it's equalized because it's out there in, right. in, in social media. Right. What is your, how do you use social media to communicate science? And what, what do you think about it? When I was in space, I really wanted to use it just to share it. I, when I was a kid, I, I would love to have had astronaut Twitter to follow what they're doing. So yeah. I wanted to just share so the So there experience. is a such thing, by the way, is astronaut well, Twitter? There's, well, mine is Astro Terry. But, Some, I but I didn't know if there because we actually do have something in the weather community called Weather, weather right, Twitter. Right, 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 right. Twitter. There's a NASA astronauts account. Okay. There's a, there's a bunch of accounts. Okay. You can find, so you can can find, find stuff. Something. Yeah. Um, but I, so I just changed my headline on my Twitter. Uh, and it says, In God I Trust, Everybody Else Has to Bring Data. Because <laughs> the biggest problem we have is ideology. When yeah. people start making decisions on ideology or whatever, we end up with all the messes that we have on the planet. That is right. It's better just to be focused on data and 
you don't believe something, you just know it to be true because it is what it is. Right. I, I, if we made more decisions that way, we would make better decisions. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I write a column periodically for Forbes magazine, and I, oh, I really? wrote an article on when the skepticism and ideology become biased. Uh-huh. And so it, it's it's one of the worst um, things that like ruin our decision making yeah, on the planet. Yeah, and I think it's something that you know. Yeah, certainly in science, you know, we question results and should be, you know, help have a healthy skepticism about science. But, you know, I, what I find in the climate world is that there's a sort of a perceived bias that creeps in in some of the discussion. Well, and, you know, on the one hand, some people just deny it. And on the other hand, there's an extremism. You know, I've, I've recently read some big articles. If Greenland melts, the sea levels will rise 10 feet. Or if Antarctica melts, well, yes. But that's but probably not if the happen. event that caused Greenland to melt happened, we'd all be dead anyway, yeah, right. right? So yeah, you got to have the, the the extremes on both sides are doing us injustice. Then you then you either deny it or you 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 don't make the decisions you should be making. It's yeah. better just to be here's what's going to happen. There's there's always like a lower end and a higher end bounded, you know, on the curves and. Um, it's yes. better to try and remove emotion and make decisions. Right yeah, I, actually. And that's what uh, a good colleague and friend of mine, uh, Congressman Bobby Inglis, is conservative congressman from mm-hmm. South Carolina. Uh, he says something very similar to you. He's a very strong conservative. He right. has an A-plus conservative rating, but he right. gets it about climate change. And he says, right. look, the risks are there. We can't ignore them. But we've just got to be smart about it. Right. Yeah. Let me kind of pivot in this last sort of few minutes here. Um, what are your thoughts on NASA? What, where should where is where's NASA going, or where do you think it should be going, or the space program? Right. So um, I've actually written some articles for Ars Technica and uh, NBC mm-hmm. and some other uh, The Hill and some other things. Um, in my view, the 21st century should be about Mars for human space exploration, but you can't just fly to Mars. Like the Martian movie, I loved, saw it in space. Uh-huh. Um, the Mar- There's lots of interesting science there. Uh, but this Mars ship just showed up and took everybody there. And th- <laughs> in reality, Mars ships don't just appear. You have to have some build-up planning that that lasts over presidential administrations. Sure. And so, um, I think that we should be coming up with some type of build-up approach. Uh, you know, Apollo wasn't Apollo; it was Mercury, and then Gemini, and then Apollo. So we we need to start having that. And I just had a meeting at the. White House at the National Space Council and was the vice president's in charge. Are, of are you are, are you in your so I, I was going to mention this National Space Council because right. again, during my time at NASA, it wasn't really around, but it's it kind came of come back, back. Right. But it's been there in, in the past. Right. What is its role and are you involved? Um, they invited me to do uh, as like a guest speaker okay. or witness or whatever. Um, so I'm, my involvement was pretty limited, but its role is to help make space policy. A guy named Scott Pace is kind of the secretary. So he's leading the effort for national space policy and, um, and the vice president and part of the cabinet are members of the space council. So I'm really encouraged about it. I'm hopeful we can come up with some coherent space policy. The message I had was unless it's bipartisan, it's going to be canceled because the next president's going to hate the last president and it's going to cancel what he did. And we've seen this over the last decade yes, or two. Yes. And that's not a that you, maybe you can run other political programs that way. You can't run space policy that way. It's, it's, yeah, that's it, right. And unless we get the rocket science is not the most important thing. It's the political science that's the most important I, thing. Well, and I I'm worried about and I you know I want your thoughts on this because there's always this push and pull and this tug of war. Again, I I'm very much involved in that earth sciences world at NASA, right. and there's always this sort of 
well should NASA be doing Earth sciences? Right. Where should it be? And it's taking away from what? What is your perspective? So when it comes to Earth science, I, I think the government needs to be doing it. Right. The, the best organizational way should NASA be doing it or NOAA? I've always, and I'm not from there, so I, sure. I'm an outsider, but. I think that if you're going to study oceans and atmospheres, it would make sense to me yeah. that the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration right. would be doing that. Sure. So it kind of seems like NASA should be doing space exploration and NOAA should be studying oceans and atmospheres. Right. And then when you go through these budget cycles, you don't – if you're doing Earth science and NASA's budget, there's ways that the politicians can get their hands and – do things with money. If you just fund it through NOAA, then it's very clear. We're funding. Yeah, no, I think that's maybe a smarter way to. to think in my about mind, it. yeah, you do oceans and atmospheres through the Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and you do space exploration through NASA. Yeah, I think the big challenge, though, and this is the reason I asked you this, is because we're kind of tussling with this. Is that you know NOAA has a very sort of operational applied mission, whereas NASA has been fairly sort of on the research, research and development right. side, and so. Right. There, there have been some sort of challenges with that. So um, in theory, I, I would sort of suggest that I, I get your not logic there, but I'm a little uncomfortable completely there now. But I think that's a discussion for, uh, uh, well, that many people are still having because I think a lot of people believe exactly what you say. Yeah, yeah. and I'm not saying yeah. it should be cut or increased. Or, I'm not saying the the bot, the top line shouldn't be changed. It's right. just a question of what's the best way where, to organize where, where's it. Where's the home? And I think people are having those conversations, but I I, I think that NASA's role in Earth sciences is a unique one right now, and I think it's going to be a conversation that we're going to continue to have. So I always like to ask people in the space world because I get different right. viewpoints on it right. because I've got I've get people say no, it has to be within NASA because of the way NASA thinks about Earth sciences and the system as well. So right. I always like to have it's different. a weird thing because Earth's a planet, yeah, and it's an there is that aspect of it and yes. Jupiter has weather and Venus exactly. has weather and Mars has weather. And yeah. so there is an aspect of that for NASA. But, um, exactly. It's a sort of earth system, but yeah, I want to kind of pivot this last discussion here um, to say now that gravity has grounded you, so to speak, <laughs> right. sort of what do we expect going forward from you? So my uh, goal on post NASA is, is to share the story. So I'm doing speaking around the world, uh, talking about not only my space missions, the rockets and the planets and space is interesting, but, and this surprised me, but I think the bigger lessons that I learned were about Earth mm. and this life on Earth and yeah. global wealth and the environment and those kind of things, leadership lessons and intercultural lessons. Um, so I love sharing that. Um, the book, you know, I have a few more books in my brain I'm okay. trying to get out. Uh, TV show we are, we're doing, it's going to be called Down to Earth. Um, the and, and who's who, do you have a well, it has for not that? It, okay. we just filmed the pilot last month and okay. we're pr going to produce it and then shop it okay. so uh, it's the basic theme theme is you know I saw the earth from space and then we'll go explore so you know the first one was Tierra del Fuego Patagonia um, but lots Namibia Kamchatka, the Bahamas. There's lots of places on my to-do list. On the, that's the problem with being an astronaut. Your bucket list gets way too yeah, long. Yeah, that's right. I can imagine. Um, and I'm sure you're quite in demand as well, just <laughs> from people that want you to come do things like this. Yeah. And, and you said you're traveling to China. I'm sure. The, the schedule's been yeah. crazy the yeah. last few months, but yeah. it's fun. It's it's uh, Look, space is universal. It sure. doesn't matter if you're Chinese or French or Argentinian or American. Kids everywhere and adults everywhere are really interested in it. And uh, 
uh, it's a story that's fun to tell and, uh, you know, people want to hear it. And so yeah. I'm trying to do a little bit of that now. Well, I want to thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. It's been an, a pleasure to talk to you. And I, I, I'll, I'll say to the listeners, I was pleasantly surprised when I walked into the studio today because I didn't realize you were actually going to be here in person. I thought <laughs> right. we were doing it remotely. So it's been an honor to meet you. This is fun. Yeah. And, I, you know, I want to sort of just close with this notion that, you know, we talked today, we were talking with Terry Vert's uh, astronaut and pilot. And, I thought we were going to talk a lot about science and space, and and we did, but it was really interesting to hear the common thread of humanity throughout many of your remarks. So mm-hmm. thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's been great to be here.